Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on yet another overcast day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Lionel Guyette, Finance Director of Performance Actors. Lionel, hello. Hi, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Thank you for coming on the program today. Um, we might as My well, pleasure. We might as well get stuck straight in. Um, yep. What does the word leader mean to you? It means somebody who leads by um, a man who gives good examples, who is there when needed, uh, who advises, um, and by his actions and by his behavior, gives good guidance and is a good example to people. And how would you describe your personal leadership style? Well, it's slightly different from difficult for me because in a cooperative agency, by dint of the fact that I belong to a co-op and have for the last 32 years, um, we, we, we don't actually have a leader. What we do tend to have are people who have um, been, I'm an actor, who have been in the profession, um, I've been an actor for nearly 60 years, so I can guide younger actors and other actors too. People come to me for advice um, and because I've done everything in the business, um, I can offer my guidance to them if they need it. And also in the running of the co-op, I tend to have taken over the administration. All the administration tends to have fallen to me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, let's go back to the very beginning of of your career, uh, both in in, uh, working with the uh, co-op and uh, in your career as an actor. Um, was there any particular individuals or circumstances that formed the way that you think or lead today? Yes, when I was when I started, when I left drama, uh, Central School of Speech and Drama in 1964, if you went into a repertory company, the director of productions was like was well, they chose the plays, they did most of the directing, and they led the way that you became an actor. So uh, I then worked in a number of repertory companies. I worked at the National Theatre with the last. Um, um, actor director, actor manager, who was uh, Sir Lawrence Olivia, and I was a member of his company for four years at the Bristol, at the uh, the old Vic in in the Waterloo Road, and he was he was a definite leader. He it was his company. He chose the actors, chose the plays, chose the directors, and I think Sir had more of an influence on me than uh, apart from one man called Donald McKechnie, who I worked with a great deal. So really, it was those were the leaders that I looked up to, and it was if you worked with a director who didn't give you a, a strong lead, then often you were as an actor you you are lost, um, and those are the people who I have tried to model my life on. Now, for those uh, outside of the the world of uh, performance uh, to understand, could you uh, shortly touch on what a cooperative agency is? Well, a cooperative agent, my cooperative agency, or or, all cooperative agencies are ones that are run by the actors. So they um, take all the decisions and they also behave like agents. So that... um, 
which is unusual. So they're, they're actor agents. So uh, I do one or two days a week. If I, I certainly do one day a week. And during that time, you, with your colleague, who I happens to be in with, run the agency. So you make the decisions about who... Uh, will be submitted for something. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you deal with you deal with casting directors. You deal with um, managers. Uh, you deal with production companies. Uh, contracts. You negotiate fees. Um, so, in fact, what happens for a for a, for a member of a co-op is that you learn a great deal more about the business of of acting and the, and the whole business of television, films, and production. Um, which is worthwhile for an actor because it gives them a greater knowledge. And in fact, when they first started, many um, casting directors, producers, etc., were very wary because mm-hmm. actors tend to know much more what they want. But in, what's happened, I believe, and I'm, and I'm sure if you spoke to casting directors, they tend to trust good co-ops now because we don't... Um, uh, <laughs> we don't bullshit. We actually, <laughs> if somebody wants, there is no point if the, if the breakdown comes through saying um, uh, they want a blonde, blue heart, blue, blue-eyed um, young woman. There's no point in sending a dark, brown-haired um, older woman. Um, and we, we, those of us that have been in the agency a long time, will tell. A younger member, or if they do that sort of thing, you have to say, "Look, there's no point in in blackening our reputation." And I think um, because casting directors now know that that the co-ops have been going for a long time and that are successful are well led by experience and by people who have laid down uh, very detailed guidelines. That, that if they come to us, they will get what they want, not what we would like them to have. And I think that's important, certainly in my business. What's the first bit of advice that you'd give to uh, a, a young actor who has just joined your cooperative? First of all, the, the first bit of advice we give them is that we, we cannot guarantee them work. Mm-hmm. No agent can guarantee anybody work. What we can do is to guide their career. And we often say to agents and uh, to younger actors, and it has happened to us, that we will teach you the business. And if you then become successful and you want to move on to a bigger agent or you're headhunted by a bigger agent, we... Uh, relish that because what we've done is turn out good actors into the profession. So what we would say to them is that we can't guarantee you work, but we would do everything in our power to get you the right sort of work. And also what we do allow actors to do is to do unpaid work or to do their own work, um, whereas a conventional agent will say, okay, if you want to you know, go off and do something on the fringe unpaid, I can't afford to do that. We are a non-profit making um, organization. We're registered with the um, with, with, as a charity and we um, are registered with the Financial Services Authority. So it's all, we, we don't make money. All the money that we, that we earn in commission goes back into the business to pay the rent, mm-hmm. to, for, for members to go and see other members. Um, and what we say to young actors is that we will guide you. And if you find that you need to go off and we, we allow actors to have sabbaticals, we, we've um, raised about, I would think, 
20 to 30 children insofar as that, that if actresses um, become pregnant and want to raise a family, we will keep them on our books for as long as it's convenient for them. Um, and uh, so we don't say, oh, yes, you're, you're, you're having a baby, you have to go. We, some conventional agents might say because they're now unavailable for work, but we look upon it as a long-term investment. Lionel. And what we do... Sorry. Unfortunately, our time together is very quickly drawing to its close. But I'm be- sorry. Right? But before I let you go, what does yeah. the next 12 months have in store for performance actors? Well, we've just, uh, we have um, members who work all the time in, in lots of various ways. We, we, we have people doing, um, two of our members have just gone off to do a training film for um, Kingsland Council. We have um, five actors who are on tour with um, a children's show called Your Toys. Um, we have people doing television. And what, what, what we will do is to keep an eye on whatever is going on and submit them in the right way so that they will do the right job for the right money. Or lack of it, or not money. You know, as I said, if it's the right job but no money, we won't say you can't do it. So what we hope is that we will continue being as, as successful as we are and as we have been for over the last thirty years. Well, Lionel, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing your business and leadership with you. <laughs> thank you. I very much hope you come back on the show at some point in the near future, Lionel. Thank I'd you. love to. Thank you very much indeed, sir. That was Lionel Guyatt, finance director of Performance Actors. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Uh, we're joined uh, today by uh, David Blunkett, Lord Blunkett, former Home Secretary, former Education Secretary. David, thank you very much for joining us today. You're very welcome. Uh, it's always a pleasure, but uh, since we are talking around the theme of leadership, it would be a remiss of me if we didn't start with the leadership election going on in the Labour Party, apart from... I'm sure you'll delight that a certain someone is leaving a post. What are your thoughts on it so far? Well, I think the party membership have got to make a very clear decision. Uh, are they in, in the stands watching or are they on the pitch playing? And if they want to play, then the two candidates that are in for the future are Lisa Nandy and Keir Starmer. I'm personally backing Lisa because I think she's a brave woman with a tremendous amount to give. She's got really good, positive ideas. I like them because they're about building from the community rather than command and control from the centre. They're about a new form of social democracy and socialism rather than trying to replicate a failed past. And she could reach out to people that others can't. So I'm, I'm giving her my backing. I think Keir Starmer is very professional Mm. very able and presents extremely well. And I, I hope that one of those two uh, actually come through in the election on the 4th of April. Uh, there has been a lot of criticism, especially from uh, four uh, candidates a little further left um, than them, who've criticised even the last Labour uh, uh, government as being part of 40 years of Thatcherism. Yes, I think it's really unfortunate, uh, particularly when new MPs come in having seen large swathes of their colleagues lose their seat uh, to roll up the 13 years of Labour government with everything that I'm so proud of. I mean, we we were not neoliberals or anything like it. We were able, 
in the first 10 years, certainly, uh, which I played a part in, to be able to turn the economy around, to invest in health and education, to be able to transform people's aspirations and their hopes for the the future. And that included ensuring people got the minimum wage, which we never had before. Sure start to nurture youngsters from the most moment they were born, transformation in the quality of education. And all these things actually add up to helping people to improve and change their lives for the better. And anyone who thinks that's not good and that isn't a government to be proud of needs to answer the question, what shivalet is it that you would want that would actually have done more to change those lives? I can think of two or three myself in terms Mm. of uh, dramatically taking on uh, inequality, although half a million children were taken out of poverty in those years. I can think of being even tougher on crime, even though I was dubbed as one of the tougher home secretaries because the people that I cared about most were on the whole, not exclusively, but mainly the victims of crime. I can think about taking on the very, very rapidly growing transnational power of the big tech companies, which we still need to work through in terms of how we do that from a a single nation just off the coast of Europe, and how we work internationally without getting caught up in wars we don't want to be involved in, but how, how are we international in a way that ensures that we play our part in making a better life for humanity as a whole rather than disengaging and becoming alien from the rest of the world. Those are big questions for the social democratic left, particularly with artificial intelligence and robotics changing the world of work forever, I think, in the next 20 years. Uh, An ageing population, Labour got 18% of the over 65 vote in the general election. Just 18%. It's staggeringly... It's extraordinary. Staggeringly bad. Um, And And climate change, which we all know is going to be either a big gain or a terrific political trauma. We've got to take people with us. No matter uh, which political party it is, the changes that will occur in this decade especially will determine their future ideologies, certainly. And speaking of your time uh, as Home Section in government, um, you worked with so many different individuals of all political stripes and none at all. Is there someone, and on the theme of leadership, that stands out to you that embodies some of those qualities you described earlier? Yes, I mean, it's on the theme of bottom-up, it was some of the most inspiring uh, head teachers and classroom teachers who, in really, really difficult circumstances, were actually transforming the life chances of children by inspiring those children to want to learn, to, if you like, lighting a candle inside them, uh, giving them a, a, a window on the world which created an inquiring mind and an understanding that the world was their oyster, that they could do things with support. My, my philosophy has always been mutuality and reciprocity. We, we need mutuality to support each other. We need reciprocity in terms of understanding that we don't just take, we, we give a lot as well. And I suppose that really comes down to if you're prepared to do something for yourself, we're prepared to do something to help you. And that's fundamental in education, but it is in all sorts of walks of life as well. So you can have innovation, you can have entrepreneurship and creativity in, in business, you can have the way in which people turn things around for themselves. Small businesses have done that. The contribution to uh, 
new ways of doing things, of thinking differently about our economy. Th those are all grit to the mill. Those are the things we need to do. And we can do them together. It's not that you're on the side of the devil if you're an entrepreneur or you're on the side of the angels if you work in public services. We, we are mm. dependent on each other. Oh, you can't have one without the other. Yes. Um, and I think to coin a term, uh, uh, extraordinary, ordinary people, and especially when it comes to giving your answer, David, to uh, teachers, to carers, people that honestly don't get the recognition they deserve on a day-to-day -day basis. And without them, half of society wouldn't function. Completely. I call it civil society, which functions even when government isn't functioning. It's, what, it's the glue that holds things together. It's people working and living and having their being together and recognising that they are dependent on each other. I've obviously met incredibly inspiring leaders in a different vein. I was very fortunate to have met Nelson Mandela three times. Uh, I met Bill Clinton a number of times, both of whom, in very, very different ways, were inspiring leaders. I've met people in leadership positions who couldn't take a decision to save their lives. Uh, Tony Blair famously said in the, his conference speech the year before he stood down as Prime Minister, and I, I knew exactly what he meant, he said the worst ministers are those who won't take decisions, and anyone in a leadership role needs to A, know why they're there, what they intend to do with the uh, authority mm. that goes with being a leader and a manager, and then how to draw people in as a team to be able to implement it so that it's a team approach. It's not someone out on a white charger. It's someone who can mobilise, motivate, provide incentives for people to feel that they're part of the solution as well. Uh, and I think whether it's politics, whether it's business, whether it's sport, it's exactly those qualities that you need to succeed in any of them. Yes, it is. And if people recognise that and they have a clear idea themselves, they, they have and build, because you can't build, leadership qualities, they know how to manage their own time and their own emotions because we all, from time to time, feel like really losing our temper and... I don't pretend for a minute over the years <laughs> that, that I haven't. How, how to control your own feelings and emotion and how to bring the best out in other people's. How, how you work out that people who are really good don't threaten you, they compliment you. People who have complementary skills to you are really valuable. And I suppose the ability to listen, not just for its own sake, mm -hmm. but to listen because you are conglomerating, I suppose you would call it plagiarising, thoughts, ideas, ways forward from everyone around you. I often think that um, football managers wouldn't do too bad a job if they actually talked to the fans after the game. Well, everyone knows, <laughs> uh, David, you know, you're a big Sheffield Wednesday fan. It I know. can't be easy having to hear the it, praise of Chris Wilder and Sheffield United every week after no, week. No, it isn't, although it's damn good for Sheffield, so I'm being a bit magnanimous at the moment. That's very good about of you. Sheffield United in the Premier League, because it, it, it does change. It lifts the image of the city internationally. If you're Not just because it's Sheffield United, but because if you're playing Liverpool uh, and you're playing Man City then that's a global audience. You're immediately beamed across the world. So that's good. I, I, I could cry sometimes. We can, we can beat uh, Brighton, Premier League side, in the FA Cup at Brighton. We can beat Leeds at Leeds. I was there when we beat them 2-0 in 
January. And then you can lose and then five you lose five nil at home to Blackburn, and half the fans were out of the ground by by half time. What, what would a manager blanket say in the situation? I I would have asked myself a very simple question: What went wrong with motivating those players so that when they came out on the field, they walked instead of ran? They didn't have any of the passion they'd had the week before at Leeds. They showed no drive and incentive to take hold of the game what what went wrong with the same players who'd played very well the week previously and if you could answer that question and there may have something may have happened who knows something during the morning before the game started something may have gone sour you get the answer to that question and you then start to ensure that we never, never do this again. Yeah, well, I'm a Chelsea fan, so I'm beginning to feel your pain at the minute. Um, <laughs> but I would like to pick up on another point you just made, actually, David, about choosing a strong team, people that compliment you. A lot of criticism that uh, Theresa May got as Prime Minister was that she tended not to pick, perhaps, the more ambitious, the more uh, 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 people, uh, uh, ministers that might well challenge her. One of Boris Johnson's, for all his faults... Uh, he has been said in the past, he's a man that picks people that are good at their briefs. Do you agree with that? Well, I'll reserve judgment on that until I see the outcome of the reshuffle, which, as we record this podcast, has not yet happened. Mm. And I imagine, I, I would be very surprised if he didn't have quite a brutal reshuffle, not just to get people in who he likes, but people who are going to be really sparky and able and clear at doing the job because you can have all the best ideas in the world you can pronounce on what you're going to do but if you haven't got leaders in those departments prepared to do it if they're just toadies by the way and there is a tendency a new mm. prime minister large majority got to be very careful that you don't pick people because you're receiving the echo of your own voice uh, when you're speaking to them but get able people in i, I, I won't comment on some of the less able, but there are <laughs> clearly in the cabinet as I speak at the moment people who are really just not up to it. I mean, incidentally, anyone who won't be cross-examined by decent journalists on the BBC, changed their minds recently about mm. Sky, <clears throat> isn't worth their salt. If, but part of being cross-questioned is to demonstrate to yourself that you've got a grasp of your brief that you believe in it and that you can persuade people of it. And if you can't do that under real cross-examination rather than sitting on the sofa for mm. a, a, an easy morning television programme, get out of the business. You know, don't, don't do Without it. Without a doubt. Yeah. Uh, that's, and also, I should add, that is how uh, Leaders of All Stripes earn that respect in the first place. But there is a question, isn't I'm there? I'm trying to answer the questions. That's, that's <laughs> what I always tried to answer the or questions. Or be very good at avoiding them. Either way. Um, oh, well, the, the way of avoiding them is to take it head on and say, I'm, I'm not going to answer that question. Explain why. Yeah, quite. Uh, <laughs> the, um, and I think one of the great things about uh, the Lee's Castle especially is that um, it takes and talks to people again, from all different backgrounds, leading something very different, whether it's a charity, whether it's a business, whether it's in politics. There comes points, though, and David, you must have experienced this, whether it's leading Sheffield City Council or as Home Secretary. When people are looking at you for leadership, where do you get your strength from? I think there's something inside all of us. There's a tenacity, there's a, 
an ambition, there's a desire to get things done, to make a difference inside you, whether you're in public service, the charities, or you're driving a business that actually says, this is why I get up in the morning. So you've got to have something internal to yourself. The, the second is the satisfaction you get back because you do from seeing things change for the better. You, you can take pride without being egotistical. There's nothing wrong with being proud of what you do and to want to do it even better. And that's why you need both sharp minds around you. In my case, it was special advisors as, as well as ministers. I pretty well picked my ministers. Sometimes Tony asked me to take people who I was a little bit iffy about and we had to meld people into the team. I was able to pick all my own special advisors and that really did make a difference. Mm. But in, in the end... You've got to like what you're doing. I mean, the, the, the people who are un, unhappy in their skin, they, they, it's very difficult to perform if you're in the wrong business or in the wrong department of a business or if you're really hating teaching or in politics, you, you're just in the wrong department. I was very lucky because education and employment were my first loves in terms of what I wanted to do and I got the job for four years. I'd then come to the conclusion that there were really big challenges for us, it turned out even bigger than I expected with the attack on the World Trade Center mm. three months after I became Home Secretary. But the big challenges of security, of reducing crime, of dealing with the development of positive citizenship, which also had a readover in terms of immigration, the kind of things that change people's lives either for the better or the worse. And you don't get everything right. That's the other thing you've got to recognize, which is why... Being part of a broader team, being able to take criticism but not always accept it <laughs> because otherwise you blow with the wind, that, that, that's the, the measure. And I think if we can share those traits, those experiences, those different elements through the Leadership Council, if we can get people from very, very different leadership managerial roles and delivery roles to actually be able to share that experience, everyone will gain something from it because that dialogue will inform, it will avoid people reinventing the wheel, it will take people a lot further than the, the niche, for good or ill, the niche that they're in at the moment. Um, David, the very, uh, in a couple of minutes we have left, um, I will be mean and put you on the spot and ask you for predictions perhaps in three things. What will happen in the Labour leadership contest? How will the next few months go for the government after Brexit? Uh, well, after we leave the European Union on the 31st of January. And where will Sheffield Wednesday finish in the league? Lord above. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure which is the most difficult of those <laughs> questions. I, I've already in indicated where my support is for the, the Labour leadership. If we take it at the end of January 2020... Keir Starmer has clearly got a got off to a very very um, strong start. I think, however, it will be very much down to who can reach those parts of the Labour Party membership that came in on the back of Jeremy Corbyn's election in 2015 to that post, who can be persuaded that what they want to see and the change, the big changes they'd like to enact 
can only be brought about in any form if we win and we win back the people, the tragic loss of people on our side uh, mm. in December 2019. Uh, and that, that's got to be Lisa Nandi or, or Kia. On, on the, um, the, the next few months, I think that the government will probably do quite well. I, I, I think that there are real dangers ahead in just having 11 months to negotiate trade deals, especially with bellicose pronouncements about we're not going to have alignment, as though alignment in itself is a bad thing when some of it will be very good. So I think there are dangers, but I think there's quite a bit of momentum going with the government at the moment, and that will be reflected in relationships, in doing deals in Europe and facing outwards to the rest of the world. Sheffield Wednesday, God help me. I mean, you know, how is it that two of the things that are most important to me, other than my family and loved ones, is football and and politics? I think Sheffield Wednesday will be hard-pressed now to get into the playoffs. If we do... I think we could pull it off, but I am really reluctant. And I think on that prediction, your reputation will be judged. Lord Blunkett, thank you very much for joining us God today. God bless you, Jonathan. <laughs> this has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.